On the last episode of Lilac Wine, the podcast, we went into Abelia's kitchen as she made some gazpacho and reminisced about Rima Reniger, a woman from over the Rhine who taught her about the fruit of love, the tomato, many years earlier. And when Robert paid another visit, she was a little surprised at how she felt. I am releasing this novel in progress, one chapter at a time. So if you missed any of the previous chapters, please go back and take a listen. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Lilac Wine. Chapter 13. It's my birthday, said Billy Miles as he and Robert stood on a rather rickety Lily Springs dock. No kidding. Happy birthday, Billy, replied Robert. How old are you? Eighteen? The torches that Billy had lit flickered in the evening breeze, the orange light reflecting in kaleidoscope patterns on the surface of the water. The aging wood of the dock creaked under their weight in the slow-moving current of the Mississippi River. It was Saturday night, and Billy had invited Robert out for a special evening, but had not yet told him what that would entail. Billy pulled a watch out of his pocket. Not too much longer, I reckon. The dock was old and obviously not used much anymore. Since the coming of the railroad, water traffic essentially ceased for the declining town. At one time, packet boats brought in supplies from up and down the river. The shoreline was a bustling center of activity. Not anymore. Boats rarely stopped at Lily Springs. Even in the fall, when the excursion boats were converted to haul apples downriver, Lily Springs was bypassed. The docks were mainly used for fishing or for tying up john boats used by the several people in town who had turned towards clamming in order to make some extra money. The clamshells were used to make buttons and were sold to the two large button manufacturers in upriver Gutenberg. Billy himself spent many hours on the river during the summer months, dragging a crow foot through the mud bottom, hooking mussels. However, the mussels seemed to be in decline, at least in the immediate vicinity. Often, Billy hooked things other than clams. Old boots, bottles, cans, and even an old pistol one time. Robert lit a cigarette and a torch and offered one to Billy. They had been standing on the dock for quite some time, and Billy found it necessary to regale Robert with stories of the Mississippi River. Not that Robert minded. Quite the contrary. He found the river culture to be fascinating. However, it was getting to be much. He had only been in town now for a week, and everybody found it necessary to occupy every minute of his time. He wasn't used to this attention, actually. He liked solitude and found that he had more time to himself while in Chicago. 
It amazed him, as a matter of fact, that a thriving metropolis offered more opportunities for solitude and anonymity than this small town. What he would give to sit alone in a dark movie theater or, better yet, a dark corner of a saloon, a cold glass of Edelweiss in hand. When Billy had asked him about Saturday night, he jumped at the chance. It was either Billy or Art and his dogs. Those were his two options. It was very apparent that Billy was excited to have him in town, giddy almost. He asked him all sorts of questions about his life, about Chicago. Billy longed for something other than Lily Springs. What could Robert tell him? He was right. There was something disconcerting about Lily Springs, Robert realized. It's not that the people weren't nice to him. It was just the opposite. They were too nice. He wasn't used to that and didn't quite feel that it was genuine. Or maybe it was genuine and he just couldn't recognize it due to the fact that he had never experienced it before outside of his immediate family. Either way, the idea that everyone knew him and everyone had an opinion about him made him uncomfortable. It seemed like under everybody's pleasant exterior, there was some serious judging going on. Except, that is, for Abelia. It turns out that the highlight of his day had become the last stop on his route, Abelia Brody's house. No longer did he stop at her front door. He simply came to her backyard first. He loved standing among the flowers, closing his eyes and inhaling deeply. She came to expect him, too, it seemed. Today, she had even offered him some lemonade, and they sat on the porch together. And that lemonade happened to have been the best glass of lemonade he had ever had. Perhaps it was just the timing. It was hot, and he hadn't taken a drink of anything before he left for the route. He was completely parched when she stepped onto her porch carrying a tray with two tall glasses. Good afternoon, Mr. Bishop. Would you like a glass of lemonade? She asked. Robert smiled and gladly accepted. Abelia didn't ask many questions. She didn't go out of her way to make him feel comfortable. She, too, liked her solitude, he could tell. They sat drinking the lemonade without saying much, just gazing out at the yard, listening to the sounds of the garden. He respected that. It wasn't at all uncomfortable. If he had sat down with any other person in town, they would be compelled to fill in every moment of silence with some inane fact about Lily Springs or a question about his life. Robert wasn't too surprised to learn that she had a lemon tree, among other things, growing in her greenhouse. This is the best glass of lemonade I have ever had, he said. There's something about it. I can't quite place my finger on it. Abelia set her glass, which was dripping with condensation, back onto a cloth coaster on the table. It's a secret ingredient, she said with a smile. Secret, huh? Robert finished his glass and shook the ice cubes to release the last remaining drops of the sweet liquid. It's very familiar, he said. I just can't quite place it. Abelia leaned forward and, almost in a whisper, said, It's rose petals. Robert thought for a moment and placed the now empty glass back up to his nose. That's it, he exclaimed. Rose. But what's strange is that it doesn't taste like a rose. Not that I have ever eaten a rose before. No, it, 
It tastes like a rose smells, if that makes any sense at all. Of course, it's all connected. Your taste buds and smelling capacity are all the same. Take an orange, for example. An orange has a certain acidity which you can taste. But take the orange peel, a little zest of the peel tastes exactly as an orange smells. The same is true for fragrant flowers. A few crushed petals impart the aroma of the flower itself, which you can taste. In fact, I use a lot of zest and petals in things that I make. It reminds me of my garden. Like that dish you made the other day. Yes, that is especially true with gazpacho. She paused and lifted her glass, the cubes clanking against the side. Perhaps I can make that for you someday. She added very softly, so softly, in fact, that Robert didn't quite hear it. Pardon me, he said. He heard what he thought was an invitation, but wasn't sure. Abelia looked down to her glass, obviously a little uncomfortable. Uh, nothing, she replied. Robert wiped his mouth with the napkin and stood. Not wanting to make her any more uncomfortable, he thanked her for the lemonade and told her about his outing with Billy. She laughed and said that she could only imagine what he had in store. And Robert was about to find out as a steam whistle cut through the night, pulling him back to the present. He could hear the faint sound of music coming from down the river. Billy, now standing on the edge of the dock, whooped and pointed. Here she comes, he yelled. Around the bend came a large stern wheeler, her decks alight with hundreds of electric bulbs. Huge plumes of black smoke poured from the two smokestacks into the dark indigo sky as hundreds of silhouettes mingled along the decks of the steamer. The boat was a full three stories, painted white and stacked like a royal wedding cake. Sitting low in the water, the main deck was not too much taller than the dock upon which Billy and Robert were standing. The fast sounds of a coronet and a piano defied the whooshing of the paddle wheel and competed with laughter and shouts of joy that drifted across the water and echoed among the trees and bluffs. It's the SS Sydney, ain't she a sight? yelled Billy as the steamer turned in their direction. She's over 200 feet long and one of the most beautiful boats tramping on the upper Mississippi. She's stopping here? Not quite. Billy replied. We're just watching her pass? Billy shook his head. No, we're going on board, just not in a conventional way. Robert didn't understand. He looked to the boat and then looked back to Billy, who was grinning wildly. This is a moonlight excursion from Dubuque, he explained. Actually, it's coming now from East Dubuque. The saloon's open and they can't stop, see? The saloon can't be open while at dock. And this is not a scheduled stop, so they ain't closing the saloon. But they will slow down. Slow down? The boat was getting closer, now running a course that would put it parallel to the Lily Springs dock. She's got a wide open bow, Billy said. And all you have to do is jump on it. Jump? Are you serious? Billy smiled. Yep, I made special arrangements. It helps to know people. Have you done this before? Billy shrugged. Sure. Who hasn't? The boat was getting closer and the whistle again pierced the night. Robert noticed crowds gathering near the railings to watch the spectacle. How far am I going to have to jump? Asked Robert. 
I don't know, maybe eight feet or so. Don't worry, it's easy. A large figure appeared on the bow underneath the landing stage, which was pulled up and swung towards the center of the river, which left a large open space on the port side of the bow. He wore a dark uniform and cap. You ready, Billy? He called out. Billy waved and pulled Robert back. It helps to take a running leap, but don't jump at the boat. Since she's coming at you, you're liable to smack right into one of those rails. Run diagonally to the boat and jump with it. And if I miss, swim like hell. The boat was so close now Robert could see individual faces. People were pointing and laughing. He had a suspicion that some of them were taking bets. Just follow me, okay? said Billy. He crouched slightly like a sprinter before a race. How's this for your Americana, huh? Feeling like Tom Sawyer now? Before Robert could answer, Billy took off down the dock and leaped into the air, letting out a large whoop as he became airborne. The crowd was applauding as he landed on the bow. Come on, he screamed to Robert. This is crazy, Robert thought. He gathered himself and took a deep breath. The bow of the steamship was almost to the end of the dock. If he was going to go, he needed to go now. Letting out a large holler, he sprinted forward the wood, creaking loudly as he ran. Soon, he was airborne, arms flailing in the air as he tried to steer his trajectory and descent, landing loudly on the deck. He lost his footing and tumbled backward, coming to rest on his back under a sign that read, Streckfus Line. Applause erupted from the upper decks. Billy appeared above him and held out a hand. Now that's an entrance, he said. After helping Robert to his feet, the man in the uniform slapped him on the back. <laughs> Welcome to the Sydney, he said with a laugh. His brass buttons reflected the light of a hundred electric bulbs. Watchman was printed in large letters on his cap. That was real graceful, he added with a laugh. His name was Martin Burnside, and Billy introduced him to Robert. I've known Martin here since I was a kid, Billy said. You still are a kid in my book, replied Martin. Martin lowered his head close to Billy's face. He was at least a foot taller and suddenly very serious. You know, Billy, Captain Streckfuss isn't piloting the ship tonight. Otherwise, that never would have happened. I know, said Billy. Just wanted to treat my friend from Chicago here to a true riverboat experience. And with that, Billy held out his hand. Robert could see several crinkled bills between his fingers, which Martin took and placed within his pocket. Be interesting to see you two on the route back, said Martin, straightening his uniform. It's much harder jumping to the dock, I reckon. I have a feeling at least one of you may be taking a bath in the river. He looked to Robert and smiled. And I've got my money on you, he added with a laugh. He then opened the gate leading to the main deck of the ship and ushered Billy and Robert through. Have fun, boys. Muffled conversation filled the air. The stomping of hundreds of feet kept beat to the fast-paced music coming from the large orchestra up on the second deck ballroom. It was loud aboard the Sydney, and young people moved and weaved around posts, hung over railings, and chased each other up the stairs. Most held bottles in their hands. And they weren't drinking Bevo, that was for sure. Isn't this great? exclaimed Billy. I don't know what to say. How much? Don't worry about it. It's my birthday, and this is exactly what I wanted. At least let me buy you a drink, offered Robert. 
Billy wrapped an arm around Robert's shoulder. Never can I turn down a drink, my man. <laughs> Let me lead the way. Billy guided Robert into a flow of people moving up the grand staircase to the second deck. The ballroom was huge and newly refurbished. Now advertised as the Mirror Palace, the highly polished wood of the dance floor stretched 180 feet down the length of the steamboat. American flags hung from the low beams and the electric lights were turned down, glowing gently from several chandeliers that hung from the ceiling. Even so, the shapes of hundreds of people fox-trotting to walk in the dog reflected on the floor as if it were water. The large windows were open and a nice Mississippi River breeze drifted through the crowd. Robert bought two cold Potosi lagers and handed one to Billy. Happy birthday, he said as they clanked glasses together, foam running down the sides. It had been a week since he last had a real beer, and the lager tasted good. Granted, it wasn't Edelweiss, but it was good enough. Billy grabbed Robert by the arm, leading him down the dance floor so that they could get an unobstructed view of the Kentucky Jazz Orchestra. A red-headed Negro with light skin and freckles pounded the keys of the piano, while several other Negroes played along, almost oblivious to the large crowd dancing in front of them. That's Fate Marable on the piano, said Billy. I first saw him about 10 years ago on the JS. He played ragtime back then. He personally put together this band. Robert had heard this song before. It was popular about a year ago. However, he had never heard it quite like this. The tempo was faster, to be sure, but there was something else. There was a certain intensity coming through the rhythm. The musicians all swayed with the music, eyes closed. Sweat glistened on their faces and foreheads. The large bass player tapped his foot loudly on the floor, each time lifting his entire foot off the ground. The clarinet carried most of the melody, and the man playing it moved fluidly, his entire body oscillating gently with the tune, his instrument a mere appendage. They played harmoniously together, each man doing his own thing in his own way, but never losing touch with what the others were doing. There was no sheet music to be found, no music stands. They were speaking to each other in a language only they knew. Robert was mesmerized and found himself unwittingly tapping his own foot along with the beat, and before he knew it, the song was over. Roaring applause erupted from the dance floor. Someone whistled loudly. The musicians all took out white handkerchiefs and briefly dabbed their brows. Fate Marable then counted to three, and soon a standard waltz filled the room. There was an audible groan among the dancers, which brought a slight smile to the piano player's face. And Robert knew instinctively that Fate Marable and his band were not born to play waltzes. Billy tapped Robert on the shoulder. There was a sense of urgency in his voice. Hey, let's go upstairs. We can grab another beer on the way. Sure, Robert replied, not exactly wanting to leave the ballroom. Billy moved quickly through the now smaller crowd on the dance floor. Approaching the bar, he held up two fingers. Before Robert could even catch up, Billy had paid for the beer and was making his way up the stairs. Robert was concentrating on the song that the band was now playing and nearly lost Billy in the crowd. There was a certain familiarity to it. 
Stopping on the stairs, he looked back at the band and suddenly recognized the song. It was the Jolly Fellows Waltz written by John Philip Sousa. A man had played it while testing out a piano he had helped deliver several months ago. Although the Kentucky Jazz Orchestra played it well, the intensity was gone. They were now merely going through the motions, no doubt waiting for another opportunity to play the music that was in their blood. Satisfied, Robert continued up the stairs, now concentrating on another task, finding his friend with the beers. That was chapter 13. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun writing that chapter. Spent a lot of time researching riverboats, researching the Streckfist steamer line, and so forth. And uh, the Sydney actual actual boat on our website, we're going to put up some pictures. It was in 1917, in that summer, when they premiered their new ballroom, the Mirror Palace. And there were pictures in newspapers and so forth. And it's really kind of a cool thing. Riverboat excursions were a big deal. You know, they weren't really used for transporting goods and produce like they had been before. This was really for entertainment. And the entertainment that is going to take hold on these riverboats was jazz. And Fate Marable, he is one of the unsung heroes of early jazz. He was born in 1890. At the age of 17, he got a job for the Streckfist steamer line. He had to play the calliope, which is this instrument that uses the steam from the engine through pipes. You know, they they were popular in carnivals and so forth. He didn't really like to do that, but he slowly started incorporating more New Orleans style jazz. He was given a lot of leeway in what he would play. It is Fate Marable who discovered Louis Armstrong. He hired Louis Armstrong for a bit, and it is out of New Orleans around this time, around World War I, when musicians began going on the riverboats and moving elsewhere. Jazz moved up the river into uh, St. Louis, Chicago eventually, Kansas City, and then later to New York City and Fate Marable was right there. Now, Fate Marable didn't record anything at this time. In fact, he really only recorded one album with a few songs on it. So there isn't a whole lot of record of Fate Marable, but there's a lot of stuff about him and the steamboats. And it's really a fascinating history. I went to Dubuque a few years ago. And uh, took an excursion, a steamboat excursion, and that was kind of really cool. Not as big as the Sydney. The Sydney that year in 1917 premiered their newly redecorated ballroom. They called it the Muir Palace. I'm going to put up some pictures of that on our website because it's just a really cool aspect 
of history. And so this chapter 13, we're really beginning to see some movement in the plot. I know as I'm reading this, uh, you know, I don't know if it's boring or not. You know, honestly, I, uh, I love these characters and I've been working on these characters for a while. I am a history teacher, so I love putting in the history. I maybe put in a little bit too much backstory sometimes. I like, you know, like to go off on tangents. One of my favorite writers is Ray Bradbury. Not that he did that, but one of my favorite books of Ray Bradbury's is Dandelion Wine. It's a great, great novel about a summer in a small Illinois town at about the same time. And it's really a collection of vignettes. And that's kind of what Lilac Wine has been up until this time, a collection of vignettes focusing on characters and their backstory. But now we're beginning to get some movement here. We're going to see a relationship obviously develop between uh, Abelia and Robert. And now we've got Billy. At this point, when I was writing it, I really didn't foresee Billy's role too much in this story. But this next arc in the story is going to take three chapters, and we're going to learn a lot about Billy. And it was really at this point when I began to realize that Billy is going to play a major, major role in the narrative. And in fact, to be honest with you, I have already... I've already, in my head anyway, I have the sequel uh, to continue the story here. And, and you know, Billy's going to play a big part of that. Billy, is, we're going to learn a lot about Billy here on the steamer. And it's going to come back. What happens here on the steamer is going to come back to haunt him a little bit later. And it's going to be one of the things that is going to bring a whole lot of changes to not just Lily Springs, not just to Billy, but to Abelia and Robert as well. So that there is chapter 13. We're going to be back on the steamer next time around. And uh, we're going to see the aftermath of that. So that will be next week. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. We have you know, a few dozen listeners uh, for every episode, and I would really love to hear what you think. You could go to lilacwinenovel.com and uh, ask me a question. I will answer them right here. If you have any suggestions, any constructive criticism as well, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. And again, thank you so much for listening to this labor of love of mine. I really appreciate it. I'm going to get some shirts made, I think, this summer and um, send them out to you know people who, uh, who would like it just as a token of my appreciation for listening to this podcast. Until next week, I am Bruce Janu. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information.
Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>